Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and with me today are Ashaman. Hello, everybody. Dusty Wheel. What's up? Fan. Hi-ho! And that's everybody. Okay. Today we're picking back up with the second half of Hyperion, the first book of the Hyperion Cantos. This will be spoiler-free to start as we go through general impressions, but because it's the second half of the book, maybe... Maybe don't uh, continue on if you haven't read the book before. Your choice, but we will give you a spoiler warning before we actually dig into things. Okay, let's go with general impressions of this book. Ash, what do you think of the second half of Hyperion and how did it fit into the book as a whole? There's two really good stories in here. (laughs) And one that is okay. Um, But I'm curious which one you're talking about. Really? Okay, I'm just going to state which one I'm talking about, because that's not really a spoiler. So I I think the weakest stories in this book by far are Cassad's in the first half and Bronn and Lamia's in the second half. And Mm, I think structurally, that works out very well, because the second and the fifth ones are the ones I think you would really want to have be the weakest. So you have a strong start, you have a strong middle, you have a strong end. So I, I don't I don't hate. Ron Alamia's story? You fit in some exposition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the, the second and the fifth stories are still good. They're still pretty interesting and stuff. It's just, I, I think, like, the other stories just knock it out of the park. So, uh, good. It's good. Uh, if you haven't read it, r- read Hyperion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how many people are going to listen to the second half of this without have, having read the whole book? I mean, at least one, because Red's going to listen. <laughs> but uh, Dusty, how about you? Uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed the second half. I sort of agree, but like, I think that I liked uh, that one story that we said was the weakest better than I did in the past. So it was still pretty far up there with the other stories. And I think this second half of the book has more of my favorite stories than the first half. So I really enjoyed reading the rest of this book. Okay. And that's that. Short and sweet. Kieran. Overall, I think it's hard to compare. I loved, loved, loved the two stories in the first half of the book. And I really like all three of the stories in the second half. So it's hard to compare. I think they're all excellent. I love them You all. loved it. Great. Awesome. I've read this yeah, book seven times it, right? now, at least. So I clearly love it. But no, I mm. was struck this time by how weak I thought parts of the detective's tale was. Mm-hmm. I definitely thought that there was more exposition that got in the way and more explanation of political shenanigans than necessarily needed to be there. It had to make up for story number four. (laughs) (laughs) And it had never been one of my favorites, but yeah. Story number four, come on. I was like, oh, Ash probably loves this part and this part and this part. I we'll, we'll get into it, and I'm sure you've gotten we'll, all those right. We'll get, but story we'll number four, it. <laughs> not like no exposition there. Basically, there's like one or two important things to the overarching plot, and like everything else is, yep, you know, yep. just excellent character work. <laughs> is is four? Is that soul? That's all. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's move into the full spoiler section then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, fans who didn't want to listen. We're we're done with you. okay okay let's move into full spoiler territory for the first book and we'll start this with a recap 
We left our pilgrims at the Port of Edge, where they find a belated wind wagon with which to traverse the Sea of Grass. At night aboard the automated vessel, the scholar tells the tale of his infant daughter, cursed by the Sphinx to travel backwards in time. After he finishes, they adjourn to the deck of the wind wagon just in time to see the ouster scouts destroy the tree ship Yggdrasil. The next morning, Hetmasin is gone, his cabin covered in blood. Still, they soldier on, moving to, and heroically starting, the tram over the bridal range, where the detective reveals how she's twice pregnant by a fugitive AI and a holy figure of the Shrike mythology. At Kronos Keep, the consul tells his story as the sky explodes with orbital munitions. How his grandfather's search for Nookie led to a quickly quashed planet rebellion, how it fueled him to become a double, triple, quadruple agent, the ouster spy. The book ends with the pilgrims assembled, walking the last stretch of their journey to the now glowing time tombs, singing, we're off to see the wizard. Can I start off with a question? Yeah. So when you first read this book, and from the first time that the, uh, the seven characters were introduced, who did you think was the spy? The consul. The consul. <laughs> <laughs> When I first read the book, uh, I was uh, like in grade nine or grade 10, something like that. Uh, so I, I didn't uh, even try to predict it. I, to be honest, I completely forgot there was a spy by the time the console revealed that he was it. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I don't remember trying to guess or think about it. And then I was like, ah, okay, that makes sense. That's fine. Okay, I won't bother. <laughs> I was like, what's the most surprising answer going to be? It's the person narrating this part of the story. <laughs> <laughs> the part where the spy is like introduced was the part where I was like, yeah, it's probably him. He'd be a uh, cool spy. And he is. <laughs> He's a very cool spy. He's an administrative spy, which is a type that I love. Mm -hmm. Not many spies wear tricorn hats. Not now. It's because he has got flair. Lamia wears a tricorn hat too in this uh, section of the book, and I, I think they've made like a revival. Hmm. I, like I would like it if they did. Tricorn hats are, are just a thing. They're just excellent. You know, I wish they came back today. You could make it well structured. They've got room for lots of ornamentation. Yeah, they're nice. I think they're a little sporty. <laughs> so if we're good with that, then let's go through this in chronological order to start. Let's start with the Sea of Grass. Did you guys like this little addition to the setting? This hundreds of miles and billions of hectares of just long grass that you go over in a wind-powered wagon? Oh, yeah. It's interesting. And it's the cover of the book, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is the cover. For me, it's definitely the most memorable transition period in this book. It's one of the longest. Yeah. I'll be honest. I like After I read it the first time, and it's been it was several years since I read it the second. I, I thought they were in the wind wagon the entire time because that's just what stuck <laughs> in my mind. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really just for uh, Saul's tale. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting a uh, little bit of world building on an already interesting world. I really like it. And the other thing that happens to me is whenever I think about the Sea of Grass, I think of the scene from uh, Is It the Lost World? Where he's like, don't go into the grass! And the Velociraptors attack. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> and they say that there's, like, snakes that live in yeah. the Sea of Grass, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, the grass is also super sharp. Super yes. sharp. Wouldn't you know it, but uh, Stephen King has written a story about how grass is scary. <laughs> <laughs> of course he has. So with the uh, the death of Hetmastine, did it kind of come off of his, like, a uh, Agatha Christie novel? 
where like all of the characters are one book and somebody's dead, and then you got to find out who that was. Very murder in the Orient Express. Yeah. You even have a detective. Yes, we do have a detective, a private investigator. Yep. She gets a little bit of characterization before her story, and uh, not enduring it. <laughs> Ouch. That's not no, true. come on. No, she gets it's not, it's not true. She does get characterization. <laughs> she is just, in my opinion, easily the most boring character in the story <laughs> of, the, of the six protagonists. No. Yeah. The most swayed by a beautiful AI. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Be? John Keats reincarnated. It really seems like her whole personality kind of hinges on how attractive she finds him. Mm. And she takes a number of risks and leaps that she would not otherwise do based on this kind of instant attraction. Well, hers was a love story. That's what you got to do. I don't like insta-love, no matter the wonderful literary story it takes place in. I just don't like it. I liked it in the console story. (laughs) (laughs) that wasn't insta love that was that was a carefully calculated campaign of seduction oh by who siri or siri 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 was just like a a teenager overly hormonal so yeah a lot depends on uh, if you believe her when she says that she never slept with anyone else (laughs) i believe her i i do too i but um that's that sure sounds like love to me (laughs) I don't think uh, Lamia's was insta love anyway. She didn't like him at first. It took some cajoling. He was well, pretty. She, was... she always said that. Yeah. yeah. He did say he was pretty. Um, and then How about we talk about the Saul's story first? Yeah, let's go to Saul. <laughs> no, it was, the, it was the classic noir detective of like, yes. she was beautiful, except it was he was beautiful. And it was just the gender reversal. They even said that she had three giant windows and they looked out on perpetual dark rain. from like a ventilation shaft it was just constantly raining past her window which is as neo-noir detective movie as i can get i was pretty much blamed he definitely wore his influences on his sleeve i think my opinion of the detective story would have been much improved if uh, it was told by chang from community yeah (laughs) if you'll remember he has an episode where he does a film noir thing and it's excellent (laughs) yes it is excellent i'm shaking my head oh arizona match company (laughs) her words rang inside my head like a bell inside a head (laughs) (laughs) okay we can tell which story you don't like yes we can talk about saul's tale (laughs) let's talk about saul's tale how much did it break your heart we have a question from red army Inn who says I don't know if I have a question so much as a comment about how much the scholar's tale ripped me apart. And this is indeed the story I've been wanting to talk about the entire time we've been covering this first book. So let's go. How much did the scholar's tale rip you apart, Ash? Or were you too admiring of the philosophy of moral evolution? Oh, well, I mean, that's all standard stuff to me. So I wasn't uh, too distracted by it, if you know what I mean. No, I I, uh, really liked it. It was one of my favorite types of stories. There's almost no conflict. It's just a character trying to deal with the situation, essentially. The question was about how much it broke your heart. Yes, yeah, it was. I'm expounding on that. <laughs> it, it, did, it did make me very sad. Uh, on a scale from 1 to 10. 12. I should have to talk for like three or four sentences about philosophy before he covers his heart. I need to, <laughs> need to establish the groundwork. Uh, first, we have to define our terms. What does heart mean? Um, hey, 
<laughs> Dusty. Ah, <laughs> uh, wait. Are we actually jumping to me, or are we gonna let him? Yes, finish? please. Oh, all right. Oh man. Uh, so this one hit a lot harder and a lot differently. The last time I read it, I was single in college, whatever. Uh, and this time, I actually have like a family, and especially reading the parts about. Oh man, backwards development, like. Every time, like, my daughter, like, learns something new or, like, realizes something or perceives something, like, it's so amazing to watch. And, like, we love that. Like, oh, she's got a few words here or, like, now she understands that color or these shapes and how they go together. And so reading about all of that going backwards, it was not just heartbreaking, but it was also just, like, all of that hard work and, like, the pain that goes into it, just, like, all of it just being unraveled. And I just was sitting there just, I just, like you guys said, heartbreaking, just wanted to cry and then just be like, I really am glad that there are no time tombs that will happen to me because I couldn't do this. I would have <laughs> just like run off into the wilderness and like disappear because I'm like, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that I could watch my daughter like backwards develop. So. Saul and Sarai are rocks. Yes. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. Just absolute mentions the idea of wrapping up a bike for your daughter because that's what she remembers getting and then having to make it disappear after that like one one night where she has it mm -hmm. ah searching your attic for clothes that used to fit her and now do again watching her lose the ability to walk and then to losing talk teeth yeah losing that in a while crocodile Mm -hmm. and her first or oh. last smile yeah. That's a, I, yeah that was a line the, it was full of line. and then even just like they're rocks and like even i don't know how he keeps going after he loses her you know mm -hmm. like if i lost my partner like like you said the the rock part really comes from the two of us and that's the stability so if i lost that and then had to deal with that i just it was almost unfathomable mm -hmm. and even some of the earlier moments like when she uh, has a birthday and invites all of her old friends back over and like one of them leaves crying before the party's even really started going. And then she says, dad, never let me do something like that again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was it after that that they decided like, just don't worry about telling her that, you know, she's aging that was backwards. a later moment. Okay. That was a later moment. That was when she'd stayed up for like 30 hours straight just trying to read all of the files, get all of the knowledge, and then she was going to go to sleep. And It was the one time she drank with her dad. Yep. First and last time she got drunk with her dad. I, I feel super bad for Melia as well. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That man became a ghost of his former self. I, I cried several times during that section. And I, I definitely cried. Wait, a book I, made I, I love cry. Not as bad as uh, what's his name? I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you want from on the me. podcast. <laughs> on which, the podcast, yes. Which there's lots of podcast people. This podcast, uh, yeah. Talking about Todd, I was. I'm not as bad no. as Todd. <laughs> I really thought you were talking about a Hyperion person for a while there. <laughs> okay, I'm not as bad as Todd, but yes, I do cry a lot. Uh, but what gets me so like the way it's written, it seems like there's a, a line break, and the section is uh, almost always day by day, right? Kind of. Mm, which story in Saul's story? 
Tall story. I think the it's not always day by day. I would say it's usually larger chunks than that. Whatever. At the end of each section, Simmons, uh, his last line, nearly every single time uh, was just a gut punch. When he met her former boyfriend, Saul never saw him in person again. Rachel moved into protective circle of his embrace. He went to sit next to her and let her cry for the 20th time in a row. It's just like these yeah. little lines that are just um, like, like I said, a gut punch. That was the thing that touched me the most was just the way he wrote it. The structure that he used in those like little uh, bits was masterful in being able to layer these vignettes one upon each other to make a cohesive story which covered decades mm-hmm. of time. Like the one point where he makes a Lee on the hollow net with the web's third most popular host or whatever. That's like a paragraph. But we set up the soundstage, we set up the conversation, and we set up the plea all in just this little like two or three paragraph section, and it's done. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole day. But the structure of ending on a sad note for each of these little sections, I think really does well to echo the daily cycle of Rachel's forgetting. Mm-hmm. That's how Saul and Sarai eventually break down. They always break down at night. Mm-hmm. I also really appreciate in this story the larger cultural context because Saul is Jewish. And this, in my opinion, is a very Jewish story <laughs> because Jewish mythology, it seems to me, centers <laughs> almost exclusively around suffering and being lost. And... <laughs> kind of wondering at god why is he being so cruel to you wondering the wondering jew a wondering wandering jew yeah (laughs) um and it's in my opinion like made even worse now because as Saul mentions earlier in the story like the catholics the jews in this story really feel like god has broken a promise because he destroyed the earth and the uh, higira and uh, as we learned before there was also another holocaust so yes soul embodies kind of like the, the suffering of the entire people and of course he goes to their uh new jerusalem to stay for a bit and that's kind of like the only place he finds solace in this story and then later even that gets taken from us in the consul's mm-hmm. tale he's yeah. a jew too oh, yeah. who really doesn't have any faith he constantly has these conversations with his daughter about his faith and he's trying he's, he wants mm-hmm. to believe but he just finds wants it difficult to. to believe and the foundations of his religion of course, he he has a real issue with how Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Saul introduces his tale. He says, it's a dull tale. I've never been to Hyperion before. There are no confrontations with monsters, no acts of heroism. It's a tale by a man whose idea of epic adventures is speaking to a class without his notes. <laughs> oh, sorry. Just another thing on the, the Jewish side. Sarai refers to the the shrike as the golem um yes yes which (laughs) the golem of course being a a famous protector of uh, jews during their time in prague and now even that's turned against them it seems (laughs) go ahead kip would you say that saul is not displaying heroism in this tale i think he's the biggest hero of all of the (laughs) pilgrims like bar nine i agree sure no fight there Karen and Dusty? Uh, what Ash said. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say that he's not a hero, right? Like, he even fights against, like, the stuff that he thinks is wrong with the, you need to sacrifice your only daughter. It's like, nah, 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 nah. He's fighting in his dreams. 
Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, it's totally like a hero's tale. Like, he's fighting in real life and in his dream. No breaks. Yeah, I would have broke long ago. Fighting himself, fighting his dreams, fighting his faith, fighting his people. That is decades of trial. Mm -hmm. And you're right, Ash, that there's no overt antagonist in Saul's tale. But would you (laughs) say that maybe there's a more subtle antagonist in the form of web culture and the media? Oh, yeah, I think that that (laughs) is subtly pervasive in all the stories just how toxic web culture is and soul and uh sarai even take part in it um when they vacation to maui covenant and we learn in the console's tale like what kind of like what that entails and what they're participating in there they also used it uh to their advantage or they tried to at least Mm -hmm. they did yep and then we discover later in the console's tale why it's so hard to get people to go to Hyperion and why it's so hard to get access and why Melio's expedition was canceled and why things are put off limits. Mm-hmm. And Saul had no idea, though he'd been trying to figure out everything he could about Hyperion for decades now. But he's just a little country boy. He's just a professor of history <laughs> <laughs> or and ethics, I think. Ethics, yeah. That should tell you how far philosophy gets you kids don't do it <laughs> don't even take a class just go into politics like the console does he gets what he it's wants bad for you but he knows the philosophy <laughs> stuff too so you could take philosophy and then you could get into politics no that's ridiculous that'll just make <laughs> you into a sad husk of a man that, that's true <laughs> speaking of what people have done with their lives let's go to the console playing the long game and as his double agent self participating in multiple xenocides Mm-hmm. How do we feel about uh, that? I don't feel good about it, Chief. I think maybe the console is the least heroic, but I do like him probably the most out of all the, the characters, except for maybe Saul, because Saul is just he's just an OG, real nice guy. If we're talking about likability, yeah. The best character is Martin, though. Oh, man, I would <laughs> I would kill Martin. <laughs> Several people almost did. <laughs> you bear the depths of your soul, and then he's just like a smarmy jerk, just chiming in all the time with like non-helpful comments, trying to make it seems everyone feel as bad about themselves as possible. Christ on a stick, am I the only one who could tell a straightforward story in this f***ing herd? <laughs> yep. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Going back to the earlier conception of all of these pilgrims as ships of time that have to explain their stories to one another so that they each get the full picture, how complicated were the was the time aspect of the last three stories? The last one being full achronological storytelling that alternated between the reunions in ascending order and mm-hmm. what was the other? Oh, and the the sixth reunion, the final one. The seventh. I thought- wasn't it? Was it the seventh? seventh? Oh. Uh, the seventh is when he's at the tomb and she's already dead. Okay, yeah. And th- that's where he's like monologuing between those... The final reunion. Let's uh, call it the final reunion. What's reunion. the question? Was it confusing? He's uh, no, not, not was it confusing, but do you have a greater respect for the intricacies of each of them being a ship of time? Hmm. Yes. How the, some of them are much more complicated than other ones, including one of them who's doubly pregnant within a resurrected AI from what, like yeah. 1800s Italy? I think that respect and just extends to all of the different stories and uh, ways of writing, because each story is incredibly different in mm-hmm. prose, in yep. characters, in just the way it's told. And that's amazing, in my opinion. 
Yeah, he does a lot of genre hopping um, and does it very, very well. Yeah. Especially his detective uh, cyberpunk story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it did feel very noir. Very noir. And then there's just the intrusion of the Shrike tinging everything with horror. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I'd never thought about it that way before, but the Hyperion really is a horror novel. <laughs> and when you add in the revelations we get in especially uh, the fifth and sixth stories about the AIs and how they're kind of on top of everything and making everything worse for everybody all the time. <laughs> or at the very least, orchestrating <laughs> all these events <laughs> in ways Let's... that were not obvious. Is everyone able to pretend that they only know what happens in Hyperion? And uh, uh, I could try. <laughs> I can't fully I think, remember. I think what I can happens, do it. So okay, you know, I'll try not to spoil. When when I first read it, I distinctly remember after Braun Lamia's story, thinking, like, I think this, all of this, is going to be very important. Yeah, hmm. I'm not going to say if I'm yeah. right, but I'm going to say that's how I felt. I felt like, like maybe this is like the frame, right? Yeah, everything else is existing around that, which is part of why I still enjoyed it. Well, it's not just that; it's also with um, the the Gladstone stuff. Like she sort mm. of points to it too. She's like, "This whole time, I've been trying to pay attention to what the AIs are doing," and so it's like, "Okay, so you're worried about them, and you're the head of the hegemony. So should we be worried about them?" And I think it's implied here that um, the AIs were the ones that killed Saul's wife, Sarai. In that, oh, what? freak accident in the safest possible technology. Wait, did they? <laughs> See that in another story I read recently. <laughs> um, so I, I, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't remember the the second book in this series nearly as much. I know the overarching plot, um, but uh, the way the AIs are shown to be manipulating things in this story, I think you can extrapolate that backwards to the other stories. And if there are weird coincidences involving any sort of technology. I think we can uh, reasonably cast suspicion on the AIs for that. So the AIs wanted to give Martin a very small vocabulary? Hmm? What, what <laughs> the AIs wanted to give Martin a very small vocabulary? Was it just for funsies? <laughs> well, they, they're the ones who engineered the Higira, right? The destruction of Earth. So, yeah, kind of. <laughs> okay, fair. A man who learns how to communicate like that with only six words and, and growing as much can only turn into the artist that he did. Hmm. Yeah, the Hemingway school of torture. <laughs> Did we know in this book that they engineered the destruction? Yes, we do. Okay, I don't yeah. remember when they told us. In the console story. That's, yep. Was it the console story or the console's second story? Uh, the one where it's him telling it and not uh, yes. the story of series. Okay. Really. All right. The one he uh, relays his tales among the ousters making this double crossing deal with them and they tell him a fat line intercepts and records from the Higira that show the Technocore and their human collaborators conspired together to cause the Higira. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. There's a lot of stuff in that section. It's like the shortest one, like the most important by far. So Yeah. Oh yeah. No. That 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 bit of it is like one paragraph. Yeah, and then you, yeah, you also learn that uh, <laughs> the Ousters were never aggressive; they were just getting attacked by AI forces. And the attack on Brescia was engineered, and so was the attack yep. on Hyperion. So much politics. The hegemony leased spinships and military ships to Brescia in order for them to launch provocatory attacks on the Ousters. Mm -hmm. I remember that part for sure. 
Because I'm right yeah. after that was when he was talking about accidentally being there. And then um, am I jumping ahead? Should I slow down? No, you're not jumping ahead. You're good. Oh, because, yeah, they're accidentally being there. And that was the other thing. Like, there was a lot of stuff that was tough for parents in here because then he was talking about his son stepping on a mine that somebody didn't, that placed too close to the barracks. And I was like, yep. he wasn't even home. He was at work. And it's like so tough. And I was like, that one got me too. I was like, all right, mm-hmm. I got to put the book down and cry for a little bit because there's too many things about kids in there. I can't do it. <laughs> Have fun with Toll the Hounds, by the way. Oh no! Don't tell me that. <laughs> oh man, yeah, that will be uh, that'll be fun a with Alizan, buddy. Yeah, uh, I'm almost done with Reaper's Gale. That's why he's saying that. So I'm. Uh, the last there. two books are worse. <laughs> hmm. Well, they already said the line. I know the line, so I get it. <sighs> last two books are worst and better. Uh, okay. But moving on from Malazan, which this is not a <laughs> podcast of. You're yeah, referring well, that next week, everybody. <laughs> Ooh. What do people think is going on with Het Mastine, our missing pilgrim who never got a tail? I honestly don't remember, so um Yeah, I, I don't either. I find him super intriguing because he doesn't say anything basically yeah. in the story. And he just stands there telling spirits. I want to know more about his religion. I think like Zen Gnosticism, you can just like infer a lot. Um his religion seems to we don't get details about either of those in this book. But it seems to be very uh, much about, you know, planting seeds and letting them grow and cultivating good relationships and kind of making sure things are connected, which is why they use the tree ships. I want to know more about the tree ships. Mm. We did learn something about Xenosticism in this half is that they wear a visor over their face. An isolation visor. Which seems interesting, I guess. Yeah, an isolation visor. Because they were trying to get out of the pandemic. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> we're still dealing with that in Hyperion's time. Yeah. Going back to the genocides, though, of the console, mm. which one were you most intrigued by? The Zeppelin creatures, the floating islands, or the marsh centaurs, or the telepaths on Hebron? Uh, the telepaths in New Jerusalem. Yep. So. <laughs> The telepaths on New Jerusalem kind of reminded me of, uh, oh man, I don't remember. Was it a ring world story? There's these creatures that used to be the slavers. And then they find out that they're just like cactuses now. And they telepathically tell their prey to come to them so they can eat them. That sounds awesome. That does sound like Niven, but I don't remember it. (laughs) Okay. All right. The centaurs were the coolest. Of course you thought that. Centaurs were the coolest. Yeah. That's such a hearing thing to say. Come on. <laughs> why? Please tell me why. <sighs> uh, centaurs aren't actually that different in my mind from the, the jagged, you know? The kind the of jagged? both shield creatures. Yeah. Kip gets yeah, it. Fair. I would like to hear more thoughts on that uh, Wednesday. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Was anyone surprised by the fact that the Hyperion Cantos is actually the story of these pilgrims that we're reading right now? What? I thought that's what it was. Can you rephrase that? Yeah, rephrase. Was anyone surprised to learn that the work that Martin Selenius is being inspired to write by the Shrike, his cantos, his Hyperion oh. cantos, are actually the books that we're reading right now? Oh. <laughs> yeah, AI manipulations. <laughs> I think that's what I shocked <laughs> down to. Maybe that's what they did when they messed up his brain. They gave him like six things to say, but then implanted this idea, and so his brain had to rework around it. Well, we've seen how dedicated they are to engineering artists uh, yeah. like we get that in Bronn and Lamia's story and 
yeah, like there's a technological failure on his ships that causes him to have brain damage. <laughs> That's AI right there, right? <laughs> um, we know that they can predict things to like 0.996, uh, like 99.996% accuracy for the next 200 years. Something like that. And the only thing they don't know about is Hyperion. So, uh, yes, uh, AI shenanigans right there, 100%. Shenanigans. I think it wasn't quite that high, but yes. It was really. I think it was like it was. I think it was like above ninety percent. Like I don't think it was. Hundred and one. I think it was really high. It was just that they didn't really tell people. Like they'd let the hegemony know like one percent of like anything that they knew, and that was like yeah. good enough for them. They feed oh, yeah, them tidbits sure. um, yeah. every once in a while. Sometimes to aid the stables, sometimes to aid the volatiles, but always to please the ultimates. Yes. So that's ninety-eight point nine 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 five. Thank you. It's a big difference there. It is a big difference. Uh, no, I agree. Yep. Should we talk about Bronn and Lamia's story? Uh, like, besides the AI stuff? Are you asking if we could skip it? I mean, I think we, I think we did a bit. But, yeah, what do you guys think about Bronn Lamia now kind of reduced to uh, a holy vessel of two men? <laughs> uh, um, well, she crushes a man's testicle, so I think it evens out. She, it, she does use a bed to crush a man's skull. That too. Yeah. <laughs> she lifts up the bed with, with John in it and then slams it down on a dude. Lucians are really strong. Yes. <laughs> Real strong. And dense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not uh, even the highest G world. Her story was like Fedban Kassan's, but interesting and uh, fun to read and filled with lots of interesting tidbits about their world. Yeah. It's got a love story. And yeah, it's. Uh, it's cyberpunk, and I love cyberpunk. I'm glad you compared it to Fedman Kassad, because yes, it's better than his. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. It's my it's my fifth favorite in the Hyperion. Okay, yeah, but I still fine. really no, totally love fine. it. So you do agree that the second and the fifth stories are the worst? Yeah, but like okay. the difference in quality, I think, is a lot higher than you're implying. Yeah. Oh yeah. I honestly do not like Fed Mugasad's story. I just think it's... Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's space opera. I like it for what it is. Um, but uh, it, so, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't hold a candle to the rest. Bronze major like additions to the story are that, one, they live in a panopticon. <laughs> mm. Yep. Uh, a panopticon that's surprisingly amenable to subversion by little pieces of plastic that you can carry around in your wallet, which, I don't know. It feels weird that you could that you could subvert the AI powered Farcaster network with a few like fake credit cards. Like I kind of get it, but whatever. I, I can only assume it's part of the bigger plan, you know. They're big brains. <laughs> <laughs> I do really like how AIs are done in Hyperion. They're done, I think, correctly. Basically, any story where AIs aren't essentially gods at this level in an advanced uh, society, yeah, uh, you can just kind of throw that out for scientific accuracy. <laughs> <laughs> not that Hyperion is hard sci-fi, but like advanced AIs have a lot of potential. A lot of potential. Any any civilization where the AIs are held at a steady level and they never get better, mm-hmm. that's that's a cause for concern, just realistically speaking. Well, sometimes they can explain it. The worst defender is, of course, Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the useless yeah. droids? <laughs> yeah, and like... All that matters is that you got a spunky pilot who's willing to ignore the droids. And, you know, I'm mm-hmm. dissatisfied. 
I feel like IG-88 had potential in Star Wars, but mm. they needed to keep him nerfed so he didn't become the major antagonist of the series. Yeah, <laughs> that's just how it is with AIs, right? Like, you have to deal with, like, in sci-fi, you have to deal with them in a good way. And those good ways either involve them A, being gods, or B, not existing for whatever reason. Like Dune. I do like this setting mm-hmm. where they kind of, like, in Hyperion, they're kind of, like, off elsewhere. Humanity just kind of accepted, like, yeah, they seceded, and they, like, kind of drop us table scraps every now and then. And they control our Farcaster network, which we still can't replicate. But other than that, (laughs) other than that, they're just like nice neighbors. They're just doing their own thing and quietly discussing whether or not they should genocide us. Yes. Yes. And and one of the groups is like, we're on the fence about it. And that's fine. Yeah. And far in the future, there are exactly two possibilities. One, the AIs have killed everybody. Two, (laughs) the AIs have only killed almost everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. yep, good AIs. I like stories with good AIs. Did you guys catch the Neuromancer references inside this uh, cyberpunk neo-noir story? I haven't read I it, probably but yes. did. Uh, <laughs> there were two that really stand out. I didn't catch the reference. Are they talking about uh, cases or the hacking? Uh, when talking about the hacking, there was, I think, one was said something about Cowboy Gibson. That was it. The yeah, oh, I remember that. Yeah, uh, and there was another reference that is slipping my head at the moment. But there's there's some nice neuromancer references, including the use of the word ice as a yeah. protective oh. data measure. Yeah, I miss that. Um, I feel bad for BB in this story. He uh, shows up once for an exposition dump, and then another for a heist. And then he dies, and he never really gets any characterization. <laughs> no, not much. Just like a Gibson novel. Yeah. <laughs> Other than a nickname about his posterior. Yeah, yeah. about his unfortunate-looking posterior. Uh, <laughs> no exaggerating about that bit about it being sad. a Gibson novel. And also, it's not clear that he was in any way a gifted genius of hacking, just that he was, like, very good. And that was enough for Keats to take advantage of. Yeah, they, they yeah. really used him in this story. <laughs> like, give him the target, collapse the firewall, have him get in and out with the data before... Uh, his head explodes. Before the breach seals itself. And yeah, his head does explode. Yeah, and his head exploded. Explode. Yeah, literally exploded. I and I'm like, like wait, hmm, how? Why do they make neural interfaces that can explode a skull? Yeah, it's like <laughs> I, I can only imagine that's just another invention of the AIs, you know. <laughs> I mean, I imagine so too. Yes, they just yeah. they just have that failsafe. They can explode all the cybernetically enhanced people at any time if they're shunted. Who knows? Maybe it's necessary. I mean, I'm sure they considered it a lovely failsafe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Prevent any human from deeply going into their realm without dire consequences. And is it just me, or does the the term hive city like? deeply unsettling and like indicative of the worst kind of dystopia i think of warhammer 40k when i think of Hive city by the uh-huh. way i think it's <laughs> deeply unsettling and every time we see a scene from lucis it is disturbing mm-hmm. it's like oh yeah like this is a ventilation shaft and it's just kind of drip drip dripping rain and poisonous chemicals outside and nope this is residential space <laughs> and residential spaces are called cubbies and Brana's is the biggest we see, and she kind of is able to squeeze in workout equipment. 
And that's very yes, fascinating. Because hers wasn't actually a, a residential space. Hers was a warehouse that she converted. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure that that wasn't ever registered as a place that she was living. Nope. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the hive cities of Lucis are indicative of like the worst kind of dystopian sprawl. Mm-hmm. I thought they were okay. Anybody have any other fun settings that they liked from this half of the novel? Uh, Maui Covenant was... Right, Covenant's cool. Yeah. Before it was ruined. I really liked the world of Barnard Star, which is just this little quiet agrarian mm. world. Lots of corn. And I really liked the social structure of the kibbutz in Hebron. Yep. Can you remind me of that again? The world that's closed to outsiders except the one city of New Jerusalem. It was a kibbutz. Right. It was a cooperative Hebron. Uh, colonial yeah, effort. Okay. Hebrew, Hebron. Exactly. And it had me thinking of like, what social structures or pieces of culture do you wish would survive several hundred years into the future? I think a kibbutz is definitely something that a lot of Jewish folk would hope survives. Is anything particular to you? Well, first, let me say, I think Jewish culture might be the most resilient in the world, (laughs) considering uh, their history. I think they can survive another like 600 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I there's not a lot about modern, modern culture, I think, that deserves to survive a long time. I don't know. Maybe the Legendarium Discord. Hey. <laughs> yeah, I'll turn into BB. <laughs> the Muppets. Yeah? I think family recipes for me. Mm. So like pizelas and biscotti. I want those to survive. Just general foods from different cultures. like uh, That's actually a good point. Yeah, I don't know. Just a lot of the foods that I've learned to love here in Vietnam, Like I really hope that if I accidentally went to sleep and woke up 300 years from now, I could get myself some bancun, you know, mm. which is a rice paper folded and cooked with like meats in it. It's really good. It, it would be a tragedy if we lost our excellent food culture. I mean, yeah. like pizza, you know, pasta, garlic, you know, all that yep. good stuff. <laughs> uh, that actually, there is a fear that, you know, some plants and things that we eat could go away. Like entire species of bananas have already died out. So it's true. I did a presentation on that once, yeah. Uh, I don't think species of sushi are going to die out, though. But if we lose Earth to a black hole, if we lose Earth to a black hole and everything needs to go out on seed ships, some things are not going to be transplantable. Yeah. Yeah, we'll lose the whales, but we'll keep the dolphins. But, like, what plants maybe won't survive under a foreign sun? Or gravity. We don't have a way of knowing that yet. Or gravity. Or microbes. Or whatever. Nutrients. Mm -hmm. A whole host of reasons for a plant to fail to transplant to a foreign planet. There's a lot of factors that go into life being sustainable. I just hope our art isn't lost, especially the Muppets. Hmm. Or Malazan. Speaking of pre-Higira art, and I know we're jumping all over the place right now, but whatever. Yeah, that's good. How did you guys like the ending of this novel? Was it an ending? And did you like the anachronism of we're off to see the wizard? I loved it. <laughs> I love the anachronism. I hated the ending. The ending. But, like, it's it's a publisher, right? My friend actually has a version of Hyperion, uh, where Hyperion were published as one work. Wow. So it's out there somewhere. Wait, I missed all of that. What did you say? He has a friend who has Hyperion and Fall of Hyperion published in one novel. Oh, cool. He was actually the friend of me to Hyperion. I like the ending. I what? also like the splitting of the books into different books. Because I don't think uh, I Fall of Hyperion works stylistically very well with the first half of Hyperion. Yeah. 
I'm going to agree with Ash on this one. I think that this like six chapter pilgrim story is very stylistically different with the next, and I like the split. But I do view it kind of like the splitting of the Iliad. It, there's no ending, though. <laughs> what about the splitting of peace stocks and battlegrounds? <laughs> <laughs> no. Also didn't have an ending. I haven't read that one. No, 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 no. This is not a Dresden podcast, and it will not become one while I am. I will agree with you that stylistically, Fall of Hyperion and Hyperion are very, very different. And I understand why some people don't care much for Fall of Hyperion, even though I adore it. But Hyperion also doesn't have an ending. That really bothers me. And I was not expecting that when I first read it. So that's why I would tell anybody, I'm like, hey, read Hyperion. It doesn't have an ending. So you need to, if you want to find out what happens, you need to read Fall of Hyperion. I give that caveat as well when I recommend Hyperion. But I personally disagree with it because I think that Hyperion, even if nothing were published after it, is still an amazing book. Mm, agreed. Fair. I think, yeah, it would be more dangling threads than I would normally accept from a novel, but I would do it. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, this is still good enough. I accept <laughs> it, it. It is a book about lost people being lost and themselves through that. So, you know, not having an ending sort of works for that. It's where the Canterbury <laughs> Tales ends. Yeah, but that was a different specific reason why it ended that way. And Canterbury Tales is not a novel, right? I mean, it kind of is, but no. Novels didn't really exist by that name back then. Exactly. Uh, what I noticed on this read-through was the first part of the console story, and the first part of that is very similar to certain scenes from Romeo and Juliet part and yeah uh, his friend dies almost exactly the same way as a uh, certain character in romeo and juliet <laughs> killed me <sighs> yeah there's no way it's not intentional no yeah. it's absolutely intentional yeah. like it like <laughs> yeah beat for beat almost identical in certain spots and like even the physical actions of the characters are almost the same Yep, and he wishes that she hadn't died, but was merely sleeping and returned to him as young as he was. Yeah, hmm, descending into her tomb, her <laughs> white marble tomb, <laughs> which is missing a body. Oh, yep. Oh no, we put here into sleep. <laughs> oh, sorry. Someone talked about Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Huh, huh. I, sorry, I'm just gonna shove it in every single podcast <laughs> I do from now on. Like you'll never you say that as if you don't already do that. Yeah. Well, I started out not doing it. Okay, you guys feel like taking some more Discord questions? Let's do yeah. it. Sure. We already covered one of them. Murph asked, what did you think about the frame story and the structure of the book? By the end, we get some idea of what the time tombs are, ousters or AI coming back in time, but it's very much half a story. But he also asked, the book mentions a couple of stories that are remembered from old Earth, like Wizard of Oz. What science fiction and fantasy stories do you think will last into the future? <clears throat> Shakespeare. <laughs> Science Lol. fiction and fantasy. You don't think Shakespeare's <laughs> fantasy? Shakespeare's fantasy. Yes, fine. <laughs> I mean, some we already know of, right? Like, I think Lord of the Rings is going to keep going, or like uh, mm-hmm. some of the Osmov stuff, like Foundation. Pretty like, even if it's not that tale, the like undertones and the things that they kind of laid the groundwork for, I think will keep going. What if we restrict it to the last forty years or so? Ooh. I think that would be a smarter move, and I would immediately motion to add Hyperion to the list of things I think will survive. Oh. <laughs> I agree. I will add speakers <laughs> again. 
Speaker for the Dead. Yeah, I actually discussed this on the Discord in uh, Classic Science Fiction. And I put Speaker for the Dead, I put Hyperion, I put Broken Earth. I would love to see Terra Ignota survive, but it's way too early for that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's going to survive five years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either, but I really hope it does. Yeah, me too. Broken Earth series. I think Melazin will persist. I don't think Melazin will ever be very popular, but I think it'll well, keep going in in much the same way that it has. I was just thinking of that and like the culture, but the problem is is that those aren't like as pervasive within like the science hmm. fiction. Like, not a lot of people have read them. It's like if you've read them, you know that this person's in deep. You know what I mean? Melazin yeah. will be the Dune of the future. Oh, that's Ooh. a that's an attractive opinion. Maybe I think Dune was a lot more popular when it came out. I like I like that. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Uh, one thing I hope does not persist is uh, MCU and superhero sto- superhero stories of that ilk. I think they are due for uh, evolution. Let's say. Yeah, I don't think any uh, TV show, that's a real cold take, is necessarily going to survive. <laughs> Uh, Sopranos. Well, that's not a, that's not fantasy. Not um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, Last Airbender, maybe. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, I yeah. can see that. I I can see that, but I think that anything involving CGI or animation is going to start looking very different from what the new standards of animation are going to be. Eventually, things are just start getting photorealistic. And with the written word, you don't have that sort of competition. Oh, I disagree completely. I, I think, if anything, it'll move away from photorealism, especially in animation. I think stylistically, there's a lot that you can do differently in animation that doesn't that isn't uh, photorealism. And I do think sure, that sure. prose is something very almost analogous to animation style that does change significantly with time, right? Like, books from 100 years ago are almost unreadable to kids of today. You know, they yep. don't, you know, assuming they read. I don't know about that, but I did read my first book with fam in it recently. That was a shocker. <laughs> <laughs> I think Batman's going to survive Batman. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He'll survive. I'll put Superman on there. Then <laughs> only known as Batman's buddy. Only known as Batman. I actually really like Superman. Boo. I no, but I get it. I think Blade Runner will survive. Yeah. Blade Runner 24. And I think we'll be, we'll go into a vault and become, very cherished. I think it'll be sort of like Book of the New Sun in that it's incredibly influential and almost nobody's uh, experienced it. <laughs> it'll become AI propaganda in the future. Yes. Oh, Jurassic man, Park. So. Yeah. Hey, what about Wheel of Time? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think so. I don't think Wheel, Wheel of Time's going to survive. I don't think so either. I don't think so. No. I love Wheel of Time. What about any of the Sanders? I don't think Sanderson will survive unless Stormlight Archives really knocks it out of the park. Yeah. For Sanderson, everything hinges on the conclusion of Stormlight. Mm-hmm. Okay. I and Dragonsteel, maybe. But yeah. Think about all of the uh, the classics that we have that we're still around. A lot of them are largely political in nature. Uh, and Present. heavy thematic and very uh, philosophical, right? Yep. Oh, is hearing going to say philosophy is worth something? A lot of the uh, the popular fantasy and sci-fi right now is not exactly that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the lesser-known stuff definitely is, and I think that'll stick around more. There's always going to be more popcorn made, and there's like that popcorn is always going to be more suited to the times. I think so. Yeah, like I think popular stuff is a lot more ephemeral unless it has something of real 
like it does have to have, I think, a, a solid philo- philosophical foundation to become uh, enduring. And like even things that do this unintentionally, like Star Wars with the the dichotomy between the Jedi and the Sith, that's like very Eastern philosophy rooted, right? I think that's a big part of why it survived. Speaking of things rooted in philosophical underpinnings, I'd like to bring up notes on the culture, which mm. serves as the economic and philosophical underpinning of Ian Banks' culture series, which we'll be covering on Green Team after Hyperion. Yo, I'm so excited. Yeah. Oh, man. I love the culture. Culture is awesome. Culture is amazing. <laughs> I mean, Do we have any about... listener questions? No. No. No, we're done now. Okay. That's it? Okay. I think it might be time to call it a wrap unless everyone wants to get in on one more thing that they wanted to mention but didn't have time for. Bromley Muse story is better than you say. Um, <laughs> I, no, I think it's really good. It's just okay. like this oh. book is very good and it's just yeah. like, it's not standing up to the rest. It's like a five foot eleven guy on Tinder. You know, it's like, yeah, it's I'm like, sure it's fine, but I don't want it. Five foot eleven guys on Tinder are great. What are you talking about? I don't, I don't know. Actually, I've never I, opened the app. Not that myself. I use Tinder, but <laughs> I've read quite a bit of Cyberpunk, and I think, I think it could stand next to a lot of it. I, I really like the conclusion of the console story in this, especially the point about the cultures, you know, that hegemony's culture becoming stagnant and needing to evolve. They're just existing in a state of imitating poorly what has come before, and the only way forward, really in the console's mind at least, is the way of the ousters. You know, you you actually move on from what you have lost. I think that's a cool thing to think about at least. There's a little moment in his story where he talks about no, it's in Braun's story actually, but it talks about the stagnation of hegemony culture through essentially what is the evolution of the TV dinner. <laughs> Just as they called it a standard holy addict food. Because the hol- the holies are the holographic imagery that now passes oh, for entertainment. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so there's just this whole section or class of food, which is just for people who s- watch TV all day and don't have time for anything else in their life. I think the important bit that is... So people in this story all around are, are holding on to their pasts in deeply toxic ways. And we also see ideologies being held on to maybe past their prime. Um, but flashback yeah and and it all kind of gets down to like what you need is meaningful not superficial human connections i think which the hegemony very much facilitates and if uh, i'm gonna make a point about modern society internet culture facilitates as well (laughs) (laughs) sure yep i think there's points in both saul's tale and the console's tale about the importance of family connections Mm -hmm. and Siri pulls a very you know nothing Jon Snow thing on Marin pretty early yeah. on, and she's like, "You're very well trained, but you don't know anything." Yeah, mm-hmm. you know lots of facts. Yeah, lots of facts. Lots of like, oh, you know who Horace Glennon Height is, and she he's <laughs> horrified that she has no idea, no response to that name, and it's like, dude, these aren't important. And she's yeah. the moment that she's talking about with her children; those sound important. You go into a room, and if what you need isn't in that room, just leave. <laughs> After 30 years of going into rooms with strangers, get better at leaving. If that's not what you want, isn't there. Or you go into a room and you forget why you came. And uh, then you kind of exist in that space until you go back and then you remember and then you go back. 
One thing I want to say about the console story is I thought it was largely about the (laughs) horrors of civilization and what unregulated progress does to a society. No, we're not talking about Malazan here, Em. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I got out of it. You're not wrong. I mean, like, there is like that (laughs) that idea that technology increases faster than like our social evolution. Humanity's reach exceeds its grasp. Yes, exactly. And that's huge in this story. And I kept thinking about that stuff. Like, I mean, you could even argue that AIs already run our lives in the algorithms that are built to get us to go online or to talk to people or to look at certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stupid AIs. I was reading about how the most toxic thing you can do to your YouTube channel is induce someone to leave YouTube forever. So videos that actually help people achieve tasks like do-it-yourself videos, where they then ah. they watch the video and then they leave YouTube. It's like Tinder. They're heavily penalized. You get a good relationship off twi- Tinder, guess what? You're not using Tinder anymore. <laughs> okay, I think yeah. we're good to go. Join us next time as we cover Fall of Hyperion and we talk about Hopefully. how it's nothing like this book. Yep. <laughs> it won't take us five months to get there i promise I don't hopefully that. it won't take us five months to get there uh we've had some delays about covid thank everybody for sticking in here and we'll see you next time signing off you can reach us at discord you can reach us at reddit discord the real place to go uh you can support the legendary podcast on patreon but ta-ta for now Sayonara. bye bye later Shout out to Horizon Brave for starting this podcast and Craig for loaning us this corner of his media empire. Our intro and outro music is Galactic Damages by Jingle Punks. Bye.